Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. EastEd is a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org. You are listening to Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I am Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward. Over 80% of teachers in the U.S. are white, but most don't know that their whiteness matters. Teaching While White seeks to move the conversation forward and how to be consciously, intentionally anti-racist in the classroom. Because white does not mean a blank slate. It is a set of assumptions that is the baseline from which everything is judged. It is what passes for normal. Which means if you are not white or don't adhere to those assumptions, you are abnormal or less than. We want to have conversations about those assumptions, what they are, how they impact our students, and how we can confront our assumptions to promote racial literacy. You are listening to Teaching While White. So when we started thinking about doing this podcast, I remember seeing that there was this teaching book on the New York Times bestseller list, and I was totally intrigued. There's like a teaching book on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's called Building a Better Teacher, How It Works and How to Teach It to Everyone. And I was just intrigued thinking about, is there such a thing as a good teacher, like a good teacher for everyone? It doesn't appear to mention race. And I started to wonder, is it possible to be a good teacher without really understanding your own racial identity? This is Elizabeth, and that's a great question, Jenna. It's kind of at the heart of this podcast, right? So we decided to ask Peggy McIntosh about this. She wrote White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, and she founded the program The National Seed Project, which stands for Seeking Educational Equity and Diversity. Here's what she said when I asked, Can you be a good teacher without understanding the role that your race plays in the classroom? No, I think not. It's not possible to be a good teacher without knowing how your accumulated, acculturated self um, bears on your attitudes, your assumptions, your expectations, your sense of what is reward, All of that comes into play. In this episode, we're going to look at what it means to be aware of your white racial identity when you're teaching. You'll hear more from Elizabeth's conversation with Peggy McIntosh, and then a conversation I had with Debbie Irving, who wrote the book, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. By the way, this is new territory for a lot of us. I know for me that at the beginning of my career, I had difficulty saying white or saying black or mentioning race at all. Right. And that is part of the reason we need to hear more people talking about whiteness explicitly. At the start of my conversation with Peggy, I asked her when she first realized that her white identity had an impact in the classroom. She said it happened back in the 70s. She was teaching a literature class at the University of Denver, and she had her students read one book by a black author, Jean Toomer. And I had discussed part of his novel, Cain, in my class. And a black student came up afterward, after the class, and said to me, I'm very disappointed. I was waiting all semester till we got to reading a black in this American literature survey. And when you came to this black author, you criticized him. You didn't say anything positive. I was suddenly aware that as a white person, I had let down not only her, the black student, but also the black author, and more or less, the way I think of it now is ground them under my heel. And I wondered, why did I do that? The second big awakening that showed me I had white attitudes and assumptions that should be questioned is that my dear friend and colleague, an African-American woman by the name of Gwen Thomas, 
and I were talking one day in our offices. She, too, was teaching English at University of Denver. And she was standing there, and we were talking about the campus unrest and the difficulties of uh, teaching when students were so distracted by uh, protesting this or that social matter. And she, she casually said, I wouldn't want to be white if you paid me $5 million. I was astonished. I had assumed that people of color wanted to be white, that we had the better deal in life. And suddenly I heard that being white would be anathema to her. That woke me up to the question, so what is it about being white that this woman most definitely never in her life would want? Then I knew it mattered. So I think following on that, which is really interesting of having both stories that you describe with people of color, given that people of color um, have been talking about whiteness since it was created, why did you want to then join um, that narrative? I thought I had a new angle. I hadn't heard of or read David Wellman's book, Portraits of White Racism, nor had I read his wonderful formulation in that book, White privilege is a system of advantage built on race. So I was trying to think, deal with all of this myself and come up with my examples of why I thought whites got more than we deserved. So anyway, when I went into my subconscious mind um, and found my examples of being given more than I deserved... I thought I should write this down, that this was an, an arithmetic I was doing of unearned advantage that came at the expense of other people who didn't, who had a corresponding disadvantage. And uh, so then I added it to the literature. When Peggy says she added it to the literature, she means she published her paper, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, which was groundbreaking. The paper included a list of ways that white people had privileges that people of color do not. Here's a quick sample of how the list reads. I'm never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. If a traffic cop pulls me over or the IRS audits my tax return, I can be sure I have not been singled out because of my race. And I can choose blemish cover or bandages in flesh color and have them more or less match my skin. Peggy, when you describe your process, I remember reading your list for the first time. And as you said, we didn't have anything out there that sort of detailed that in the way that you were able to articulate it. And I think what that list did for me was, as I read yours, then I had the opportunity to think, huh, very interesting. Here's Peggy's list. What might my list um, look like? So I think it was a really, um, and continues to be a very powerful tool for us to use, again, as you say, to sort of get into the white psyche that has been so bathed in this notion of white supremacy that that it's the water we're swimming in. We often can't see it. And I've, I've always been grateful because for me, my understanding of my white identity, though it got triggered by folks of color and folks of color asking me questions or making statements, it really has been my work with other white people that's helped me understand my whiteness. Um, I had to hear that identity articulated from folks who looked like me. Yes. Right. So as you think about, um, we'll switch to sort of a school setting because we're really trying with Teaching While White to speak directly to teachers who are sort of on the front lines. What do you think has been the greatest barrier to racial equity in schools? What keeps getting in the way um, and, and, and creating a system that's not as fair as it should be. 
There are several things that create the barriers. I'm not sure which is the greatest, but teacher training, just like training of younger children and and students, uh, ignores all of the moral history of the United States and allows us as teachers to stay um, deluded about the immoral history of the United States and its um, institutions. Then there is this myth of meritocracy that teachers were raised on and are raising children on, which is the idea that everybody gets what they deserve. But mostly, the teachers were raised on the idea that no big social systems govern what we are taught or how we are taught and what we value and how we see. So it's a U.S. failure to see systemically. And then there's also the, in connection with that, the projection onto people who aren't doing very well in life, quote-unquote, that not much can be expected of them because they're just not very good people. And the reason they're suffering has to do with defects of character and will rather than circumstances of birth within our big hierarchies of race and class and gender and sexual orientation. You know, all of those things keep us from having an educational system that trusts students to think, encourages children to turn out as the kind of person that that they potentially are. Those are tremendous barriers to de- development. I think education should be about student growth and development. And instead, it has to do with all kinds of mythical things about preparing the next generation. Well, we can't do it on the basis of the ignorance that we've been basing curricula and teaching methods on. What has been your biggest personal barrier? What have you um, had to overcome to challenge racism? I had to overcome sexism. The, the mistrust of everything that was in my female mind. I had to overcome my mistrust of all my observations and thoughts that didn't fit with what I was learning in school and what I was being rewarded for writing in school. So I had to see this huge power system called sexism muzzling me and also blurring my thinking and making me uh, accede to those who seemed to know more, like all my college professors. I became expert at learning what they thought, not expert at learning what I thought. And until I could resist them as men, I, I couldn't resist the white voices in me, mostly created by men, saying that whatever I noticed didn't really apply. It was sentimental. It was, quote, merely personal. It didn't count for a hill of beans in the big academic world, nor the big political world. So I've, I've overcome that to an extent Though now, as I put my essays together toward a book, I find that writing the head notes uh, is something that my internal sexist and racist critics fault all the time. It isn't clear enough. It isn't uh, based on a wide enough experience. It doesn't have a ring of authority to it. And the other voice in me says, listen, guys, this is the way I think. This is the way I write just bug off because lots of people have thanked me for the work I did, which was personal. (laughs) 
So tell me, so now we'll turn to a more hopeful. Now we've, we've talked about barriers. Now I'd like to see some, God, please help us find some hope on the horizon. Um, how do you see teachers making whiteness explicit in the classroom or on campuses? What are you seeing that, that, that again, gives you hope for the future that we're moving in the right direction? I am thrilled by the success of the SEED project in helping white teachers to know themselves better so that they, in turn, can see how complicated their students are and elicit from the students the kind of personal testimony that we elicit from teachers in the, uh, in the training of new SEED seminar leaders. Just a reminder, when Peggy talks about the SEED project, she's describing a program she founded more than 30 years ago. SEED stands for Seeking Educational Equity and Diversity. The program has trained more than 2,400 teachers to serve as facilitators, including me. Those facilitators have gone on to work with more than 30,000 teachers nationwide and abroad. Peggy describes the training process as a double circle. It's a double circle. We elicit personal stories of their own understanding of power and privilege and how they've seen these and felt them in their own lives. It's a very personal. And then the second circle is the teachers who sign up for their monthly groups to, uh, to come each time, once a month through a school year, to tell their own give their own accounts, not narratives as much as testimonies. A narrative is a story with a beginning, middle, and end. You can easily polish a narrative to make yourself look good or feel good. Um, testimony is what was actually said to you, uh, is about what was said to you and uh, what you have experienced in your own body and mind. Uh, and it doesn't all fit together. It's filled with particles and fragments. But as you unpack some of those in the circle of those who are listening, not to critique you, but to understand you, then a certain release happens. The, the soul grows, the soul of the teacher grows. It is such a relief to be heard and not argued with and to hear others and not argue with them. Peggy McIntosh says that students are the real experts on education. She is amazed by the number of education scholars who have never asked kids about their school experience. And she tells a story about interviewing her 10-year-old grandson about his impressions of school. I said, could you please talk for a few minutes about your experience of school? He said, well, the food is no good, but I like my friends. Now about teachers, I'm going to make you a diagram. They're the mean teachers. Then they're the nice teachers. They do a whole lot for kids, but they don't get us. And then they're the and he paused and searched for words. He said, they're the, they're the understand, they're the caring teachers, and they don't blame me. The reason he said that is he is the class clown. He's extremely smart and very popular. So he makes life difficult for teachers of the second kind who don't get him or the class because the class loves him. A year later, recently, now that he's 11, I said, Tobias, I've been quoting you to teachers. He said, what do they say? I said, they think you're brilliant. He said, well, I've been thinking about it, and I have two categories for mean teachers now. There's a, a good teacher but mean. And then there's a teacher who's just mean. They hate the kids, they hate the books, they hate the school. They should retire. <laughs> and then, then he said, I've got a second 
category for the nice teachers, too. He said they're the nice teachers. They do a lot for kids, and they don't get us. But what I have found is, now remember, this is an 11-year-old speaking. If you work with them and explain to them what's happening in the class, they can improve. <laughs> now, the cluelessness of the nice teacher is endemic, and it's everywhere in education. The clueless, nice teacher who was taught, it's impolite to go into politics, you know, and to, to discuss power systems and to discuss feeling oppressed. It's just not something, especially not something women should do. And it's an old uh, feeling. It dies hard, and it prevents systemic discussion of the way power systems have the, have a stranglehold both on education and on individuals within education, whether they're the younger generation or the teaching generation. So it's all, all very discouraging. Yeah. But um, the SEED project brings you back to your, your own experience so that you, in turn, can respect the, ex the students as carriers of experience. And you, the teacher, have to stop trying to be in control of what they have experienced in their life. Their own testimonies are their own. And in SEED, when we go around a circle of people speaking about their experience on a given topic, we don't debrief it. The teacher doesn't resume control. The SEED leader is not a teacher. Uh, she or he is a facilitator. And doing a debrief is very often a reassertion of control from the top. Peggy, perhaps you've noticed this, but for all my time in schools, we continue to sort of have excellent teaching in one basket and then diversity and looking at issues of equity <laughs> in another basket, right? <laughs> like there's like there's like the real and I always say it's like it's sort of like the, the I'm laughing because it's such a common Yeah. Yeah. Assumption, this compartmentalization of the mind. Right. And I think it's really white, too, in some ways. Like, it feels like more of that controlling piece around yeah. that we're going to structure these narratives, right? But I often say to schools, you know, we, we continue to have, when I was working as an academic director, you know, we had the academic program, which I said was the sun, you know, and then we had the little moon of diversity that comes around every once in a while, and maybe it appears um, during Women's History Month, and maybe it comes around for a little black history, and maybe we do a little Martin Luther King celebration, and we may throw in some indigenous groups around things. Thanksgiving if we're really, you know, firing on all cylinders. The separation of, quote, good teaching from, quote, the diversity work, um, it makes me laugh, but it should make me cry. Uh, I don't know why I'm laughing, except that I think the way to get the separation ended is to help teachers see that the diversity is in their own psyches. Everything that they have experienced deeply is in their psyches, and their psyches are plural. And if teachers are allowed to own a plural psyche, then they're better able to imagine themselves into the plural psyches of all the children in the class. And a good teacher is so aware of those complexities that he or she truly elicits from students their experience of the world and respects them for that. Sometimes it turns the kids into writers, sometimes into artists, sometimes into scientists, getting the students to trust their powers of observation this takes you right back to John Dewey and also to William James. Both of them were very plural-minded and believed in the um, fertility of imagination in students and in grown-ups, if only they will uh, let go of some of our acculturated rigidity.
That was Peggy McIntosh, author of White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Elizabeth, when Peggy talks about the clueless, nice teacher, it makes me feel a little panicky. Right? I worry about all the ways I might still be clueless about my own racial assumptions and how they impact my students. Yeah, it's such an ongoing process to stay conscious of how our racial identity affects other people. That's where Debbie Irving comes in. In her book, Waking Up White, she talks about becoming conscious of her race and the way she's been able to reclaim parts of herself as she does that work. I asked Debbie what her intentions were for the book, and she said she wanted it to be a bestseller. I wanted to write a bestseller, uh, not because I had any aspirations to be a best-selling author, but because I felt like this is a message that has to get out there. And the message being, uh, hey, white people, you might not know what you don't know. I sure didn't. And I wish someone had put this book in my hands 25 years ago. So I just, maybe we should define what whiteness is. How would you define whiteness? Do you have like a quick, easy definition that you use? Well, I knew I was white. I could check off white yep. if quizzed or asked <laughs> to fill out a form. But I really didn't understand the degree to which being white had shaped my worldview. So if you wanted to tell people they were white, what would you mean when you say you are white? Mm. I don't think I would say you are white. I would say, have you ever, how much thought have you given to the fact that being white has shaped your worldview? Because that's what it's about. When did that first sort of hit you? Well, uh, for 25 years, I was on diversity committees. So sort of right after college, all the way until I had my major wake up moment. Um, I was on diversity committees, and so I knew there was something going on. I knew that I always felt awkward, stifled. There was an elephant in the room. I was had a physical reaction of nervousness uh, in multiracial groups or even with a group of white people talking about it. So I knew there was something that I couldn't explain, but it was almost too confusing to even think about what was confusing me, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And it was on, it was at the age of 48 when I went to take a graduate school course called Racial and Cultural Identity, Identities, where I thought I was going to learn about other people's children, black and brown children. So I was so excited I was going to learn about them and help teach them better. And in fact, it was a six-month deep dive into my own racial and cultural identity. Mm. And when I first heard that in the first class, when it was framed that way, my thought was, well, <laughs> I can see what some people in this room are going to do, but what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, cut to six months later, I had learned so much about um, the creation of the United States and who was and was not given access mm -hmm. to rights, resources, representation, even respect. And a lot of that was based around skin color. Not all of it. There was a class element in there, too. And as I started to realize that one of the many injustices that had happened was that um, I, I had only been told a very narrow slice of history. And here's a good example of it. Part of my family comes from northern Maine. My family got a land grant, and f and I have had so much pride my whole life in the fact that my family founded that town. It's a town we went to every summer. One of the things I learned in that class was about the displacement. It's obvious now, the displacement of indigenous people. Every time a land grant was handed out, there was a group of indigenous people who were displaced before or during that. And so I also learned that those in that the the mass displacement displacement's a pretty sanitized word because mm -hmm. it was a very violent undertaking a part of that displacement included putting young children in boarding schools to assimilate them to be more anglo mm -hmm. they were taken from their families they had their hair cut off they had their clothing removed they were scrubbed clean with something like lye or you know, something to disinfect them. They were put in little Anglo clothes. They were handed a little Bible. The point was to Christianize them. They were given Anglo names. So 
when I start to understand the degree of violence mm-hmm. that was a piece of that historical moment where my family was moving onto this land, that changes my understanding of U.S. history, of my own family narrative. And, um, and it really gave me a sense of what an information vacuum can do and that it allowed me to fill my whole imagination with the glory around my family's accomplishment without ever wondering who else's history might be entangled with mine Hmm. and how they might tell their history. So I assume that you wrote this book um, and that I'm assuming that you believe that making whiteness explicit is important um, and that your book helps to do that, right? Yeah. Would you say that? I think it starts to. It's definitely meant to be a one-on-one. Um, I, it's been four years since the book came out. Wow. Which means it was probably four and a half years since I stopped writing it because I had to do the whole publishing thing. So in the last four and a half years, I've learned a lot more. And I'm increasingly focusing on uh, white, which I would have once called American. Uh, but not all Americans feel this way. <laughs> That's part of the white privilege I had, that isolation, to be swimming in my own story and only my own story. But I've become increasingly uh, interested in what white culture looks like, because if a cultural behavior is second nature, which it is, how do you break that habit? How do you? So for instance, uh, a cornerstone of my family culture and what I now understand is the white culture is conflict avoidance. You know, don't rock the boat. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And so um, that is really ingrained in me to the point where anytime I can even sense that there's an elephant in the room or conflict arising, I get a twist in my stomach. And my reflexive urge is to go quiet and change the subject when actually... Um, if we really want to transform and expand beyond the very narrow set of white cultural norms, I have to find other ways of being in the world. So what do I do when I sense conflict? So I'm learning to navigate conflict and um, in my marriage, with my children, with colleagues, out in the world, at the post office. You know, <laughs> It's amazing if you grow up in a culture that does not encourage conflict Uh, navigation and conflict resolution and instead um, encourages conflict avoidance. I I came out of my childhood with really no conflict avoidance, I mean, conflict navigation skills. So it's a skill set to develop. Right. So that's why you think naming whiteness and making it explicit and, and being really detailed is important is to because we need to identify it before we can change it. Yes, and we also need motivation. So once I understand that conflict avoidance um, is suffocating and oppressing other people who, and this might be my husband, or in the case of, of uh, uh, you know, racial tension, people of color who feel if they try to speak their truth will get shut down, judged, not believed. If that's what conflict avoidance, that's the impact of it. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about teaching, you know, what does that look like with a family who comes in? What does that look like with a student? What does that look like with a colleague? And it's not just in that moment, but but whiteness has a history. And the oppression that it's created has a history. And so naming a simple behavior like conflict avoidance, understanding the impact it may have on people around me in the moment and the impact it has had on cross-racial relationships historically, that's important. Mm. It's important if you want to change anything, you have to know what it is you're moving away from. Right. And I think it's important to insert here, it's not that conflict avoidance is terrible. It's just, it's not always the right strategy. Right. There are times where it's really good to know to just keep your mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe to contain your emotions and and hold that off for a moment where you can have a private conversation with someone. So it's not to be clunky and go good, bad, right, wrong. It's to say, wow, when conflict arises, there are 101 ways to move in that moment. How many 
ways do I feel capable of moving? How nimble can I be in that moment? And so, for me, my experience in trying to expand and outgrow, expand beyond whiteness, outgrow whiteness, is that I'm increasing my capacity as a human being. And in many cases, I'm reclaiming pieces of of my humanity that I had to pack away Mm -hmm. in order to assimilate into the white way of being. So we're talking about teachers and schools and so, and I actually, maybe I'm going to quote from your book here. Do you like to be quoted too from your own book? (laughs) I know you know. So funny. I should sit down and read it again. Yeah. Um, well, I just was flipping through it again because I read it when it came out. Um, so I was reacquainting myself with it. And this really stuck with me. Um, you say, I remember thinking, uh-oh, don't I bring to the classroom the unspoken, maybe even subconscious belief that my English ancestry somehow made me a more capable teacher? I really know how to be an American. They're lucky to have someone like me. Wasn't I charitable to choose such a do-good vocation? If I can teach these children to be more like me, they'll be better off. That really stuck with me. Um, mm. Obviously, when you think about what we're trying to do with Teaching While White, um, that's exactly it. And I think I'm not pointing fingers in any way. I think every white teacher, I'll speak from my own perspective, I've definitely had similar thoughts like that and... Um, but I just wonder if you can think of a specific time in your own classroom, maybe, where that idea played out, where your benevolence, um, when you were there to to help children, or or that you felt superior as a, maybe compared to other teachers. I don't know um, because you felt like you really brought the American ideal into the classroom. I think we all have to do some personal work, mm-hmm. as I'm trying hard to do, because any system I try to create coming out of my old mind set is just going to reproduce the problem. And so, yeah, so everywhere I went, I kind of felt like, oh, and of course, I would never have said this out loud. It's still embarrassing. I'm starting to sweat talking about <laughs> it. Um, but this this whole idea of, um, you know, I could have done anything. Um you know, this is just so, to whom much is given, you know, much is expected. I'm going to give back. How good of me to give back? Well, yuck, really, when mm-hmm. I think about it, because the people I have in mind when I say giving back are not the kids who look like me. And why are those children not thriving in the schools? Well, it's because it's been designed by people like me, and those people have been... Um, uh, oppressed by my people. So I'm giving back something people don't even want necessarily. I mean, it's just, it's also, oh, hear me? It's so embarrassing. It's so twisted. And it's real. It is important to name it. Unfortunately, the narrative, either conscious or subconscious, in many of these white teachers, this was certainly my case, was that I was looking at them as defective and me as superior Instead of saying, I have one way of being in the world, they have another way of being in the world. It's important that I understand both and that I know what happens and that I have an awareness of how those two are going to interact. So the most specific, uh, my favorite specific story to share is this one student I had, Rosie, who came out of uh, Caribbean culture. And um, her family, you know, in the Caribbean culture, it's a very collective well-being culture. And... Um, when we would do work independently, which is a lot of the day, you're expected to sit at your desk and do your math sheet or your whatever. Uh, I didn't understand at the time. She was getting up out of her desk again and again and again. Well, she continued all through the year, getting up, getting up, getting up in the middle of class all the time. And I, you know, we had a reward system. If you can stay seated for this 45 minute period, you'll get a star and (laughs) so many stars a day, you'll get a little go into the treasure box. She hardly ever achieved that. I finally, it was when I was taking that course, racial and cultural identities, I started to get an understanding about people being 
wired differently from their young childhood socialization towards collective well-being or individualism. And I clearly had been soaking in individualism. And oh, by the way, she slept in a bed with with five siblings and cousins, and I felt so sorry for her because of that. Mm. She loved it. Mm -hmm. And what it did was it made her so attuned to other people that I later learned the reason she was getting out of her chair was because she would hear somebody else struggling and she, her impulse, you know that impulse I talked about, the knot in my stomach? Mm. As naturally as that knot in my stomach comes to me around conflict avoidance, her impulse when she hears somebody suffering is to go to them. Mm. And I was trying to stop her from doing that without knowing that's what I was doing. And once I recognized, I checked in with her and I said, do you think this could be what's going on? You know, when you got up today, for instance, and she said, well, yeah, Kendall was crying over her math. I, the teacher, didn't notice that Kendall was crying, but this young girl did. Just wonder if you could talk about the culture of niceness and maybe as nice in terms of teaching, because I think that's a very real part of teaching, but also white women and white women teaching. Like, where does nice fit into all of that, do you think? Well, um, I really do, at the deepest level of my being, adore children. As I say that, I can almost feel my chest start to get warm. I just love children. And um, my urge is to be nice and kind. And somehow I thought that that was enough. Um, I didn't understand that what might be nice in my world isn't nice in someone else's world. Um, for instance, nice for me is if you forgot your homework, oh, wow, like, let's think about how, how we can change that. Whereas the parent might want me to be much stricter. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like in a way I was holding children to a lower standard just by being nice. Um, I'm not saying I should have been harsh or cruel, but there are many ways of being nice and having tighter boundaries and might have been a way I did that. Also, colleague to colleague or to parents, so nice to me would be, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all or don't rock the boat. And yet, for some people... Um, the nicest thing I could do would be to let them blow up and hear their anger or speak really directly to me about a disappointment they had in me. The nicest thing I could do in that moment would be to really hear it and say, wow, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I had no idea I was coming across that way. So the whole niceness thing goes very much with the conflict avoidance. And so if I haven't developed any skills around giving or getting courageous feedback, um, but then I'm pretty at sea. Uh, if I could do it over again, I would be much more comfortable with discomfort and I would spend much more time with parents, um, working with them to figure out, you know, what are your hopes and dreams for your child for this year? And to the child, what are your hopes and dreams for this year? And so it would be individual, but it it would be based in something more real than, oh, that poor that poor little kid who has to take the bus. Well, come on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's just a cop-out. Yeah. So what would you, if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were teaching, before you knew you were white, what would you want to go back and tell yourself at that time? What do you wish you had done differently? What what advice would you give yourself? I think I would say you're not these students' mothers. You're not their big sisters. You're an educator. You're a professional. And you could be so much better than you are at what you're doing. You could offer these students so much more than what you're offering. And in the meantime, you would be learning so much more. I wish, Debbie, and I take myself by the shoulders and give a little shake. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could help you 
become curious about what you don't know you don't know. Learn the history of what's gone down in this country. What's gone down in your own town if you're working in a public school district? What's, what's the history of schools, especially from a racial perspective here? If you're in a private school, what's the history here? Um, are you curious to know how all the students in, this, in, this, in your class experience you and how the families experience you? How would you even find out that information? Do you know that some families might trust you more than others? Do you know that for some families, the sight of you represents so much baggage they can barely look you in the eye? I mean, whiteness has a pretty clear, strict set of rules. The easiest thing in the world, on the one hand, for people who are advantaged by whiteness, is to just keep doing it the same old way. Um, it's much more complicated to try to grow beyond it, expand beyond it, create transformative communities. It's not a nice, crisp script. There is no perfect way out of this. And so the greatest commitment needs not to be to do it perfectly, but to just commit to doing it. Hmm. And what does that look like, committing to, to doing the work? I think it means uh, committing to questioning your perspective, your ways of doing things. For me, it really has meant... Um, committing to growing myself as a human being, developing my own emotional capacity away from being that fragile white person who couldn't stand being criticized or even the hint that I could be doing something better. Um, so it's developing my, my own, developing new skills, new emotional capacity uh, that makes me more alive, makes me more human. I mean, that's the motivation. My whole world has changed in terms of the way I'm able to show up in my relationships and take on difficult moments without crumbling, without going silent and, you know, crossing my arms and giving the silent treatment. Yeah, I'm finally growing up. <laughs> <laughs> it means committing to growing up. <laughs> That was Debbie Irving, author of Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Debbie Irving and Peggy McIntosh both say that teachers need to have a deeper understanding of the myths perpetuated by a common narrative of U.S. history, myths that hide the ways people of color have been oppressed. In our next episode, which is sort of a part two of this one, we're going to talk with someone who's doing just that. John Bewin is a longtime public radio journalist and documentary maker. He's created this fabulous 14-part podcast called Seeing White. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. The program explores whiteness in America, including where it came from and what it means. And here's a clip from my interview with him. And, you know, the fable of, uh, and we said it again in this last episode, that, you know, the sort of big picture fable, which is that... Um, the United States is this nation that was founded on this idea, all men are created equal. And that's really what we're about. We're a multicultural, multiracial society. And yes, there have been some bumps and <laughs> failings <laughs> along the way, but that's primarily what, what this place is about. And, and although we've had to make progress and iron things out, that we basically have meant well from the start and still do. Now, that's a fable. Finally, we want to end every episode with students. And as Peggy McIntosh mentioned, the students are the experts of education. Here's a sampling of some of the students we'll be hearing from. First is Miles. I'm a fourth black and three-fourths white, and I try as much as possible to associate with my one-fourth black and I, I try to show that to people. I don't really see a ton of white kids standing up for their black friend. Mm. They might say like, oh, that's racist. But like everyone says that and they don't 
it's kind of lost its meaning in a middle school environment. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't mean anything anymore. It's not, it doesn't make anybody feel bad or think about what they did anymore. It just, it just means stop. I'm Natalie, 21 years old, and I identify as Latina. I think um, there's a more, there's very much like um, a standard way of like teaching everyone. And being a Latina, I obviously have a different perspective. I don't know, I wish my professors knew that there's more than one perspective in their classroom. I think that that can be very lost on some professors, especially if they've been teaching for many years a certain way. I think I've only really had one professor who fully grasped the differences of perspectives in her classroom and really tried to voice those. And that was really helpful. In that class, I felt more, I guess, heard. I'm Harper, I'm 15, and I identify as white. I once had a substitute teacher who, um, there was a kid in my class with a Hispanic name, and when he was doing, um, when he was doing roll call, um, he said, hola, their name, como estas, like, and he's like, I don't even know what that means, like, I'm, I don't speak Spanish, like, it's just my name, so, I don't know, that was weird. And he didn't like apologize or acknowledge that he just totally screwed up. Like he just moved on without any acknowledgement about what he just said. They should acknowledge that they screwed up so that the whole class knows like what they said wasn't okay. We heard from students Natalie, Miles, and Harper. This is Teaching While White. Our editor is Kate Ellis. Our sound editor and mixer is Lyra Smith. Thanks to our underwriters, East Ed. If you want to hear all of our programs and read our blog, go to www.teachingwhilewhite.org. You can also find us on our Facebook page, Teaching While White. And feel free to rate us on iTunes. That helps more listeners find our show. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi. Thanks for listening.